Tonight's reading is from the New Testament, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 and 10 through 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you desire to speak to us so that through your word we may know you and in knowing you that we may love you. And Lord, that's our prayer. We don't want to simply know about you, but we want to love you. And that is the work of the Spirit. And so we ask that you would come and do this very work in our hearts now. In Christ's name. Amen. Several weeks ago, we began a new series called Life in the Spirit, and the goal here is for us to take a look at different topics that we feel like, the pastors and the elders, feel like are relevant to us. And the goal always is not more theology, as I just prayed, but the goal is transformation of the heart. And I think this is where the Lord invites us to come, to sit at his feet, to listen, and then be transformed. So I want to encourage all of you, as we begin to look at this topic of contentment, what that means, that we simply not walk away with more theology and what the scripture has to say about this important topic that is obviously relevant to all of us, where we are in life, but that we would begin to apply this truth as difficult and inconvenient as it may be, so that by doing so, we would allow God to really work in us, to transform us, and that we would live out of his contentment. Okay? So that is our goal as we look at Philippians chapter 4. And I'm going to continue what Andrew started. I don't know if you were here at the beginning of the service, but Andrew summarized my sermon in about 30 seconds. So if you were here tonight... That's what I'm going to say. But if you weren't here at the beginning of the service, then listen up, uh, (laughs) because this is important. And, uh, you know, Glenn and Andrew, they they quote, like, musicals, movies, songs that are, like, that have stood the test of time, you know, the classics. So in that same vein, I'm going to continue to talk about one of my favorite movies, Little Mermaid. (laughs) Ariel is this mermaid who is just not happy with life. You remember the song, Look at the Stuff, Isn't It Neat? I am so close to singing this, okay? (laughs) Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm the girl? Well, you know, it's her song. I'm the girl 
the girl who has everything. Skip, skip, skip. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. I remember watching this in high school thinking, wow, Ariel, you are so selfish. You got a cave full of all the great things and you throw these away like they mean nothing to you and you say, who cares? I want more. So what do you want? And she says, I want feet. I want to walk on, what's that called? Streets. <laughs> up where they walk. Up. Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> this sentiment, which I like to call aerialism, <laughs> perpetuates the idea, listen now, that contentment is circumstantial. Meaning, if I could have more, if I could accomplish more, then I would be content. And all of us, we do the same thing. We rehearse this narrative over and over and over again, and it drives us to pursue things that at the end of the line are empty. You've all been there. You've all been there. I remember, I'm going to be very transparent now. In high school, J. Crew was like, that was it. You guys know J. Crew? And I don't mean Jesus Crew, okay? J. Crew, the clothing line. And uh, for some reason, man, I, I remember seeing these black corduroy pants. And I thought, if I could get my hands on these corduroy pants, then my life would be complete. I really convinced myself that that would be the case. And I counted the days for that, you know, the shipment to arrive. And when it arrived in my dorm room, I ripped that thing open, I put it on, and I thought I would be happy. And I was for about 10 minutes. And then I realized, man, it doesn't fit as nice as I thought it would. And I remember being so disappointed, 10, 15 minutes into it, and that, I think, is a summary of our life. When we put so much stock in the things of this world, I know we all laugh at the idea of a pair of pants completing your life, but what's that for you? Maybe it's your education, your career, relationship status, perfect children. And the list goes on and on and on and on. But we all know how the story ends, don't we? And let me say this. What you and I need is not more of the same thing. What we need is something completely different. What we need is something far better. And this is Paul's testimony. He said, I had it all. The pedigree and the resume, I had it all. And then I met Jesus. And I realized I have nothing. And today he begins to teach us the secret of contentment. And contentment is not found in more of the same things, but it's something altogether better. And the pop icon, Madonna, agrees. In an interview with USA Today about 10 years ago, Madonna shared this epiphany she had, and I quote, take it from me, I went down the road of be all you can be, realize your dreams, and I'm telling you that fame and fortune are not what they're cracked up to be. 
We live in a society that seems to value only physical things, temporary things, but they don't deliver. And she is not alone. From Socrates all the way down to all those who have scaled the peaks of various successes, they have all come to the same conclusion. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you know why? Because we suffer from this thing known as the hedonic treadmill. This idea that we get used to the things that once made us happy. There is an attrition to the things that bring joy to us. My corduroy pants. Atari 2600. I can go down the list of all the things that I thought would complete my life. And I'm sure you have your story too. And pastor and author Tim Keller explains why aerialism fails. And I thought this was really insightful. He says, people wrongly assume objects that arouse desires must satisfy the desires. And to some degree, those objects do satisfy us. Food for hunger, sleep for the tired. But when it gets to the deep heart level stuff, these things cannot deliver. Why? Because we were not made for these things. We were made for him. We were made to be in relationship with him, the divine, infinite God. And he is the only one who could fill all the desires of our hearts, not these things. You see, what the world doesn't understand is that everything that is good, true, and beautiful are things, these things that tug at our hearts and elicit a sense of wonder and awe are not themselves the real things. These are gifts, arrows, signs that point us to the giver who is the source of all that is good, true, and beautiful. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. In other words, we should not be surprised that our longing is bigger than the sum total of things that we could amass on this side of heaven. Why? Because we were made for something far better than things. And here in Philippians 4, Paul sort of says, hey, come here. I got something to tell you. You might have sensed this already, but let me drive it home. The secret to contentment is Christ. The secret to contentment is Christ. And this is crazy coming from Paul, who is in prison as he's writing this. Possibly facing death. Some of his closest friends and ministry partners deserted him, like Demas. Many were actively dragging his name through mud. And most of his church plants weren't doing so well. And we read about them in the New Testament. Yet in the midst of all of these things that weighed so heavy on his heart, instead of saying, man, I don't know if I see the light at the end of the tunnel, he says repeatedly, I rejoice. I rejoice. The question that we want to ask 
tonight is this. Paul, what is it about Christ that brings this kind of contentment? One that is not based on circumstance, but one that that will be there no matter what, regardless of what's going on in life. Please, what is it about Christ? And he says two things. First, knowing Christ, and secondly, trusting Christ. Knowing Christ and trusting Christ. Apostle Paul's singular goal in life, his top priority, his highest calling, was to know Christ. And we read about that in chapter 3, verse 7 and following, where he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. There are so many things we could talk about here, but I want to draw your attention to verse 10 where Paul says, I want to know Christ in his suffering and his resurrection. His suffering and resurrection. I'll tell you what, when we pray like this, Jesus will always answer with yes. When we pray for other things, it might be yes, no, not now. But when we pray, Lord, I want to know you, he will always answer yes. And he did. We see that here in chapter 4, verse 12, where we find explicit references to verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. NIV reads, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. You see what Paul is saying? When he was imprisoned, beaten, whipped, stoned, shipwrecked, rejected by his people, betrayed by his friends, and concerned about his churches, in all of his sufferings, he says, I experienced Christ and his suffering for me. And on the flip side, on the road to Damascus, when he encountered the resurrected Lord and when it was caught up to the third heavens, the unspeakable light and glory that awaits all of us, those who are in Christ, he says he experienced Christ's resurrection. And there, in both situations, whether he was down and out or exalted to the highest place, he experienced the depth of Christ, his mercy, his kindness, his glory, and his power. And for that very reason, he says, I am content. Why? Because I get more of Christ. It's not about what I have or what I don't have. He doesn't take stock of his life. He doesn't look around to take inventory of the things that he's got in his bag or in his room to gauge whether or not he's content. But he's fixed on this one thing. I can know Christ more, and that gives me greater contentment than anything else. 
What a strong word for us, is it not? Especially in the city where contentment is almost impossible to achieve. Many of you, you work long hours, six, maybe even seven days a week, in pursuit of that thing. And if that's what work requires of you, maybe you need to do it. But I hope you're not doing it thinking that at the end of that rainbow, you're going to find a pot of gold. And even if you do, Paul says, that's not what you need. You need something better. Let me challenge you, the church. We need to pursue Christ in this way, to know him and to make that our highest calling. Eternal life, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, is to know him. We're not going to be floating around from cloud to cloud and playing the harp, singing Ariel. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? No. It's to know Christ. And we don't have to wait until we get there to know Christ. We can know him now. He wants to make himself known to us. And it's our calling as God's people to get into the word to study it diligently, to pray, to reflect, to meditate upon these words, and to get it into our hearts so we not simply settle for theology, but we experience that in our hearts. And we live out of that reality in this city. That's what the city needs. Not more talking heads. We need to demonstrate the kingdom through our contentment. Second, trusting Christ. One of the major themes in the Bible is God's desire to be near, his desire to be with us. From the garden to Golgotha, God has always longed to be with his people. And the cross shows just how far he will go to bring those who are far away near. You see, all the major religions of the world essentially teach that God is far, and the passport to the divine is self-righteousness. Are you good enough? Are you good enough? You see, Christianity is the only religion that says, no, God has come near. That's what Christmas is all about, that he has come to dwell, to tabernacle with us. And Paul says in verse 5 that this God, who we just talked about, one who is better than anything in this world, he is at hand. Here, Paul has in mind two things, okay? Here, first, he refers to Christ's faithful presence in our life. That God is not aloof, he's not distant, he's not ignorant of what's going on, but he's very much involved in who we are and what we are doing. He is interested in all the details of our lives, not simply to judge us, to condemn us. No, because he wants to have a relationship with us. We do that with our close friends, don't we? What are you doing? Bloop. Oh, I'm not doing much. Bloop. We ask questions. Because we're interested in them. Not because we want to see, basically see if they're happy. No, we want to have a relationship with them. And God is near. He is interested in us. Because he loves us. He wants, to, wants us to know him and have a relationship with him. Okay, so it's talking about his nearness. But second, Paul here 
draws our attention to Christ's return. The big part of our contentment is the absolute certainty of the glory that awaits us. you got to flex your faith here. Because if you don't believe in the glory that awaits us, your life here on this side of heaven is going to be very, very difficult. If this is a sum total of the blessing that we have in Christ, okay, this, it's good, but I'm sure there are better things out there. But if we really believe that this is in our community, in our personal devotion and worship, we can glimpse the glory that awaits us. It ought to make us hungry for the things to come. I know we don't use that kind of language in the PCA, but really, are you hungry as you come to sing these songs, to fellowship together, okay, to do life with one another? And you see glimpses of what it means to be in deep intimacy with one another in the body of Christ. Does that make you hungry for the things that God has promised, that we would never fully realize on this side of heaven. And in the meantime, it ought to give you hope and strength to press on and press ahead. Not just dragging our feet. Go back to Philippians 3. Paul is sprinting to the finish line. He says, I want to know Christ more now. You know, the certainty of the promise to come is a powerful thing. As many of you know, uh, my fa family and I, we went to Orlando, Florida, where dreams come true for spring break. The jury's still out on that. Um, you know, on a side note, when you go on vacation with four little kids, it's not vacation, it's work. Okay? You're basically doing work in a different place. That's all you're doing. Okay? So it's not vacation. On the way down there, we broke it up into basically two you know, segments, and so we drove part of the way and, and finished the next day. On the way back, we said, we're going to do it in one shot. 16 hours of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I am not a very patient man, and it shows. Initially, I'm like, come on, guys. We just left Florida like 10 minutes ago. We are not there yet. 30 minutes later, I'm like, if you think we're there, you can jump out. Go ahead. I don't care. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I need to go to the bathroom. I mean, I'm, I'm about to lose it. And I, to make matters worse, it started raining. It was like apocalypse now. It couldn't get any worse. But it was the promise that when I got home, I could go to my own bed. You, you know what I mean? Like, that did it for me. I was like, yes, I will press ahead and make this 16-hour drive, try to drown out all the nonsense going on in the back because I can sleep in my own bed. I tell you, the certainty of what awaits us is a powerful thing. And if I'm willing to suffer 16 hours of that, Paul says, look, man, you got something much better waiting for you. And if Paul would go into explaining his experience when he was caught up to the third heavens, to experience the bliss, the glory, the majesty, 
uh, what he even saw in that split moment, I, I, I think we would have several more books to the New Testament. And my friends, that's what awaits us. And that, when we get there, all of our desires will find their true and final fulfillment in Christ. You see, the world, especially the psychologists, will say your desire is the problem. Your desire for contentment is what creates conflict and other and so on and so forth. So the problem is taper that desire or get rid of it altogether. Make it at least practical and real. And this is basically what Buddhism teaches. Desire leads to suffering, therefore have no desire. Christianity says, no, your desire is good. In fact, your desire is not strong enough, as C.S. Lewis says. Don't settle for these things. There's something far better, and that comes when we come to a relationship with this God, and we learn to lean into him with our full weight in prayer. Okay, In prayer. Let me say a few words about prayer, because personally, this is one area that I want to continue to grow in. I want to grow in the area of prayer. Because every, every autobiography or biography I read about men and women of faith who have, who have gone before me, those who have vibrant faith that just, it's almost magnetic. You're drawn to them. I find one common theme in all of them. It's their prayer life. It's what happens behind closed doors. Hours spent in time alone with God that has profound effect. And I want that. I don't know about you, but I want, I, I want our church to be that. I want us to be a church of prayer more so than some, some outing that we go to where tons of people show up, which is great. I wish we would show up to prayer meetings like that. Where Harry would say, hey, prayer team is doing this. That we would pack the house with people who say, look, I don't know a whole lot about prayer, but I want to pray because I need it. I want us to be a church that prays. And here Paul says in verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Why pray? Why pray? And he doesn't say just only big things, okay? Things that are worth God's time. No. But he also doesn't say small things, only things that God might be able to handle. No, he says everything. Everything. Bring it to him. Why? Because prayer fuels our faith. I mean, it's like pouring gasoline on fire. It fuels and enlivens our faith. Faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, that's what gives us this peace that Paul talks about here in verse 6. As we lean into him, as we pray, as we bring our concerns, as we open up our hearts to him in prayer, God meets us, not with everything we want, but he gives us his peace. John Calvin, the famous reformer, put it this way, words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. It is therefore by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches and for our time, God's peace, which are laid up for us with the heavenly 
Father. And what is this peace? Or better yet, who is this peace? It's Christ himself. Isaiah 9, 6 refers to this Messiah who is to come to be very present with his people. He is the Prince of Peace. And it's his nearness and the promise of things to come when we hold on to these things with faith that our hearts are finally quiet and at peace with God. And this is what Paul meant in verse 13 when he said, I can do all things, all things through Christ who strengthens me. Regardless of the situation, regardless of what I have or don't have, I have Christ and I am content. So regardless of where you are in your life, regardless of what that thing is that you are pursuing, hoping that somehow by obtaining it, you will find what you're looking for. I think it would do us well to listen to what Paul has to say, to realize that what we need is not more of the same thing, but we need something far better. That is Christ himself. In fact, he's right here. He wants to be known by you even now. Let's pray. God, thank you for your presence, your grace, your promise in our life. And Lord, we turn to you now and ask again so desperately that it would not simply end here, but God, that we would pray through these things to hold on to your promise and to live out of these things that we have heard just now so that we would never be the same again as your people, that we would become agents of transformation in this city, that through our lives and words that we would display the kingdom that is indeed come in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.